Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 397. Today is Sunday the 15th of November 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Jared Hanning. Jared is an acclaimed classical musician, author and a stimulating speaker, having been four times on TED. In this conversation with Jared, we discuss how our brains function when we listen to music and what that can tell us to make us better people and leaders. We look at the power of being, some kernels from his new book, The Thinking Patterns of Success, and the wisdom, even the need, for each of us to find a bigger problem. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Jared Hanning. Great to have you on the show. Uh, a fellow musician, but I, I, I feel like a mountebank when I say that because you're a real one. I'm just a, a wannabe amateur per, by night. You're a multiple-time TEDx talker, uh, author, and, and a guy who likes to change minds. In your own words, how do you like to describe yourself, Jared? Mindset mentor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> But yes, uh, my background was classically trained uh, music. I was principal viola, uh, spent 20 years as a classical musician. So I have, like you, enjoyed having music in my life in a different way. I've been to maybe 800 or so concerts, uh, classical included. And uh, so music has played a big role in your life. And it's one of those funny things, and I would love for you to react. I've always said that music is is one of those three questions to which the answer is always yes. Yes, you'll pay taxes. Yes, you'll die. And yes, you like music. But which music? That's up to you. What do you think about that? Do you, do you believe that people tend to like music? Uh, overwhelmingly, yes. Um, and I would say that the rate that people don't like music is probably the same rate of people who don't pay taxes. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, it's, it's remarkable that the music somehow does relate to everybody, but in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and classical music is certainly not a trendy thing to like, Jared. I mean, presumably, when, you know, for all the kids going to school today, it's those type of people. <laughs> how, do you, how do you reconcile that? And, and how do we make classical music become, again, more attractive? Or is that a lost cause? Uh, I, I don't think it's a lost cause. Um, I just think we're approaching it from the wrong angle. Um, so yes, I would agree that uh, the music chooses you as much as you choose it. As far as the music style, like is it jazz or pop or rock or classic or blues or whatever it is, um, there, there, there is kind of a mutual, like something in it called to you and something in you kind of responded to it. And at the same time, yes, there has been a decline in classical music audiences uh, as our, uh, we've gone from the information age um, into the disinformation age and now we're probably in the attention age. Um, regardless of whether or not the information is true or not, 
does it have your attention? And because of that and our ever dwindling attention spans and the vast number of things that are competing for our attention, um, I mean, for crying out loud, just on this call, even though it's a simple Zoom screen with video, there's probably like seven different places on the screen that Zoom has placed notifications to grab our attention. Um, and because of that, yes, classical music is going to take a hit because contemporary music is candy. Um, there's not a lot of depth or nuance to it. Your brain doesn't have to do any work to receive it. Uh, and classical music is more like vegetables. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a slower, more subtle reward that you get. Now, how to save classical music, or at least how to save the public response to classical music, um, in my opinion, is similar to football. Uh, so I don't know in on your side of the pond if you're talking about have, American football, of course. Um, well, yes, American football. But I'm curious on your side of the pond um, in your football that we call soccer, um, if you guys have tailgating um, where people, uh, when they go to the live game, there is a very large portion of them that never go into the arena. They sit in the parking lot, they watch the game on their TV, <clears throat> they have a barbecue and drinks with their friends in the parking lot while the game is happening. And for them, that is the game experience. And they think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, tailgaters. I don't know. Do you guys have that in soccer or football games? No, 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 no. I mean, but I'm very familiar with the term, of course, because I, I lived in America and I was a deadhead. And uh, let's say the pre-show time in the parking lot was quite instrumental in, in preparing me for the show. Yeah. Okay, good. Another great example, even in rock and roll concerts. Yes, there is the parking lot experience. Um, in my opinion, that is what classical music is missing. Um, classical music is effectively a really expensive movie. Uh, when you go to the movie theater, you wait in line, you sit down, you don't talk to anybody, you watch the movie, you leave. <laughs> when you go to the sporting event game, you talk to and engage with people all while you're walking in, um, even if they're strangers. The team. Strangers, yes. The parking lot experience, right? And then sometimes you don't even make it past the parking lot experience. You sit there and you throw the ball around with strangers and you interact with strangers. And for you, you're at the game, even though you're not in the game. In my opinion, that is what classical music is missing. It's missing the tailgating pre-concert experience. And so it shows up to the public as kind of a really expensive movie. Um, hmm. When football could be a really expensive movie, but what makes it different is the tailgating experience attached to it. And the, and the other thing is you still need to fight for a freaking taxi when you get out of the, the theater to, to get home because you don't bring the car to the tailgate to right? the classical concert. <laughs> yes. Yeah, good point. Good point. So, so you, you've been described otherwise as a Seth Godin of music, which of course is a wonderful compliment. And, and so talking about the stuff you do with your mindset performance and everything, you, you talk about the, the knowledge of music and how it can help you to underscore how we are, how we react, the subconscious thoughts that we have. And I would love for you to explain 
the surprising power of music on the brain? Uh, yes. So I gave several TEDx talks on this. Um, just Google my name in TEDx and you'll find them. But the short version is this. Whenever you are listening to music, three things are happening at the same time. And you can interchange music for sound. You could interchange that for uh, language. When your brain is processing stimulus from the outside world, essentially, um, three things are happening. There, you have what's happening in the present moment, what's coming in, and then your brain is making a comparison to what recently happened. And at the same time, your brain is also making a comparison of what it thinks is going to happen next. All three of these activities are happening at the same time, which creates the illusion that they are the same thing. Um, this process in the music world is called audiation. And in music, when you go, say, go to the piano and play a single key, just one note, it's really interesting how that one note has no effect on you. It, it's just a sound. It's, um, the key word here is a meaningless sound. But the minute you play a second note, that audiation process is kicked off because now it has something to compare the first sound to. And based on that, it has something to make a prediction of what the third sound will be. And now your pleasure cycle is triggered depending on was the prediction of the third sound correct? So you get rewarded for being right. Was it incorrect, but incorrect in a way that surprised you? So now you get to, to be surprised and you get that delight. Um, was it wrong, in which case now you're challenged to make a new prediction because note after note after note. And this process is what creates the meaning for that individual sound. Without this process, without comparing the past and making a prediction of the future, all you're left is with a single sound followed by a single sound followed by a single sound and a single sound by itself is entirely meaningless. Now, this gets really interesting though, when you apply this to say language or stress or productivity or relationships, business development, because your brain's doing the same thing uh, in language, in communication and relationships, your brain is hearing a word in the present while comparing it to a word that was recently spoken that creates a context and then making a prediction as to what word is going to happen next. And this whole thing happens at the same time. And so it creates this illusion in your brain that it is the same thing. Meaning when they say a word and you have an emotional response, you're happy, you're sad, because it all happens at the same time, you're convinced that their word caused you to feel happy or sad, but it didn't. The way your brain made comparisons and predictions is what caused the emotional response. So to translate that into what we should take away, we need to strip out somehow the references to the past and the fears or anticipations of the future in order to focus on the word, the emotion, the note? 
It is um, kind of a double-edged sword. If you take the process away, there is no music because music isn't the sound that you're hearing. The sound is meaningless. Music <laughs> is the space between the sounds. However, <clears throat> in language, if you take the process away, there is infinite possibility in communication because now we're dealing with the definitions of words and not the meanings we ascribe to them. Right, but that's the meanings that we're perceiving in the reception of them because yes, otherwise the risk is you take them out of context and, and the intention that is around the meaning, if you will, Mm -hmm. is so important. And so bringing to the expression an understanding that Jared is in his room with this mic and the cap and in thinking these things in, in a post-election experience, that is relevant to perhaps him needing to have a big gin and tonic beside him or not. <laughs> you know, so the word might be interspersed with a gin and tonic appropriately this time. Although if we knew that it was also 10 in the morning, that context makes a gin and tonic have a, a different flavor, it, if you yes, will, yes, on the yes. word you're talking about. Yes. So it's the interesting thing here is how to be present and contextually relevant somehow present, to understand what's being said. Yes, present and relevant. Um, what I would add there is the phrase tell me more. So because of the system happens instantaneously, which instantly creates our emotional response. And because it happens instantly, we effectively kind of blame the other person for how we felt, even though we're the one who created that. Um, if you can imagine, and, and actually this is a true story. I know the lady, um, very, she's very successful in uh, the business world. She was walking to work one day and um, some college kids were walking the other way. And one of them stopped and said, well, I see you didn't have any trouble getting all 200 pounds dressed for work today. And um, she, was, she was really hurt by this. She was really wounded. And you can imagine as she shares this story with her friends, they all affirm her that, well, yes, I would be hurt too. You have every right to be hurt. Those, those terrible, how could they do that? How dare they? How... And so like everybody agrees that 200 pounds should wound you emotionally. There's this societal agreement, but the definition of 200 pounds, what is it like 3,200 ounces or something? I well, mean, I, I'm not so good on the pounds, but over in Britain, we think of that as a, a currency, but let's say it's around about uh, 80, 80 odd uh, kilos, 80, 90 kilos, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And, and so what is the definition of that? Well, it's a measurement. It's, it's a, it's a unit. So should kilos be the cause of her suffering to pounds or ounces or grams? No, but that audiation process where it compares and predicts, and that's how it creates the meaning. So then, you know, we have the chance to ask her, what did it mean to you? 200 pounds, 200 kilograms, whatever. And she goes, well, 
It means that I'm a failure. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. This is a measurement of weight. There, there is no attachment of worth. It's just a measurement. Ah, yes, but to her, it meant she attached that meaning to it. It means I'm a failure. It means I'm not attractive. It means I'm not beautiful. It means I don't deserve to be loved. It means I won't live a long life. It means that I give up too easy. It means that my husband won't be attracted to me as I get older. It means that I won't be able to exercise with my kids as I get older. Whoa, whoa, where did all this come from? The One only word. thing the college kid guy said was 200 pounds. Who created this nonsense? And that's the world we live in. She created the meaning for what it meant to her blamed the college kid for something he never created. And that's why her suffering continued. But when we slow the process down and you can see who created that meaning, then you're free for it to mean anything. In, in, I'm interested in one area I'd like to discuss, Jared, which is something that has boggled me, bummed me out at times, which is our lack of ability to have proper, meaningful conversations. And, and especially in divisive times, it feels like this is a relevant topic where we, when I am listening to you, I'm obviously going to start, you're, you're, you tell me a story that begets another story in my mind. I'm thinking about the next question I need to ask you because I'm projecting into the future. And so the exercise that I need to do as the interviewer is to listen to what's happening. And, and then, but I'm also trying to be cognizant of structure and, and other elements that are almost logistical in keeping this interview flowing. Yet, if we were to have a proper conversation, it would just be constantly a to and fro, staying within the bounds of the conversation and the words that are coming out of our minds and not dragging into it baggage of other conversations necessarily, or, or thinking, Oh shit, my time's running out, mm -hmm. which is a projection to the future issue, which means I need to compress everything else and right. Cut that stuff out, focus on this and move away from that. So it, it feels like it's a relevant component to making conversations happen. I, I think it is. Um, the, the distinction is the emotional response that you're feeling, uh, being upset, being angry, um, is not a response to the words they spoke. It's a response to what those words meant to you. And what they meant to you is as unique as you are. So to have a conversation like that, if you're talking about divisive topics, it's to constantly be injecting, tell me more about that. They say something, it pisses you off. You want to, if you had a gun, you'd shoot them on the spot. Tell me more about that. Ask for more information because more information, more distinctions paints a clearer picture of the meaning they had attached to it. And it brings clarity to the difference between what they said and the meaning you attach to it. Big, big distinction though. We make a, a, an error when that happens and we say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean mm -hmm. by that? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that in Western culture? Uh, we believe that if there's a breakdown of communication, it was the speaker's fault for not using the right words and not explaining themselves well. 
So using the phrase in a Western culture, what do you mean by that? Is an attack. It's, an, it's a criticism of the speaker. Hey, I don't understand, but it's your fault that I don't understand. In Eastern cultures, Korea, Asia, China, when there's a breakdown of communication, their cultural belief is it was the listener's fault. The listener didn't work hard enough to understand the nuance of their message. So when you say, what do you mean in Europe or the United States, it's an insult. It's, hey, you didn't explain yourself well. Now notice what happens in your life whenever you say, what do you mean, right? You're confused, it's a heated conversation, but you still kind of want to resolve it in a good way. And so you ask for clarification and you say, what do you mean by that? Notice what happens. They say the exact same thing they just said, only louder which doesn't move the ball forward. You were confused the first time. Now you're like irritated and confused the second time. Instead, say, tell me more. Tell me more is not an attack that they failed to explain themselves the first time. It's an invitation to explore more details about that, which helps to separate the meaning you attach to it from the meaning they intended. I love it. So in, in your book, The Thinking Patterns of Success, uh, I got a chance to read your hidden chapter, The Power to Produce. And, and you, wrote, you write several times about the power of being, which I'm sure is related. Can you elaborate on what is the power of being and how to get in touch with that power? The power of being. This is such a subtle, nuanced, hidden thing. Um, in the United States, in, in basketball, one of the um, greatest of all great basketball players ever, Michael Jordan, um, after the basketball game, he would review the tapes. And he wasn't looking for errors in play. He wasn't looking for technical mistakes. He was looking for energy, ways of being, attitude. Where was he playful? Where did he slip into carrying a grudge about another player? Where was he fearful something wasn't going to work out? Ways of being, attitudes. Um, because the way of being is what sponsors the meaning we give things. If you are um, adventuresome, you're going to give challenges a different meaning than if you are depressed. You're depressed and there's a challenge, you're more likely to say, well, this means I'm not good enough. If you're adventuresome and there's a challenge, you're more likely to say, what a great opportunity to grow. Who you're being in that moment dictates that audiation process, how you compare, predict, and ultimately create the meaning that's driving your life. Ways to access more um, resourceful ways of being, if you will, uh, is to take on a bigger problem. Uh, the only reason you have the problems you do is because you're not up to something bigger in life. Uh, if we have time, uh, I, I've got a, a great story on how this no, transformed my relationship with stage fright. Mm -hmm, please do. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Okay, so the principle I just shared was if the, the reason you have the problems you do is because you're not up to something bigger in life. And when you first hear that and you think about the problems you have, don't have enough money, don't have enough time, don't have enough relationship, don't have enough health, it seems like all of those are real problems and those are your problems. So when I say that, it, it's, it's very offensive. Uh, 
here's what's going on though. When I was in classical music full-time, um, I also had full-time stage fright um, for 99% of my career. Well, maybe, maybe 95%. It wasn't, I did cure it early on. So the majority of my career, I would spend six months preparing for a solo, an audition, a recital, whatever it was. I would get up on stage and be so petrified, terrified. I'd be shaking. I'd be sick to my stomach. My head would be a fog. The moment that it mattered the most is when I was the least able to share. And music is nothing if not shared. This was a demoralizing process. I would leave the stage and want to sell my instrument. Just, just get out and quit because I didn't want to go through that again. This is going on year after year after year. Now, when you're in that situation, people come to you with like well-meaning motherly advice. On the surface, it seems like a good idea. It seems like it should work, but it doesn't actually make a difference. Um, things like, well, just do your best. Well, don't worry about it. Well, imagine the audience in their underwear. Well, eat a banana before you go on stage. Well, be sure that you've practiced enough. The only reason you're nervous is because you haven't practiced enough. Um, when all of those things actually make it worse. So I'm on stage now after decades of losing to stage fright and um, symphony's playing, my solo's coming up and I've got like 30 seconds and it's starting to sit in the stage fright, the panic, the anxiety. Only the years prior to this moment, I had been traveling and teaching about the musical secrets, about this process of audiation and meaning, about how taking on a bigger problem causes the current problems to disappear. And it had never crossed my mind to apply those principles to stage fright. And as I tell this story, I want you to think about the fear in your life. Maybe it's speaking in public. Maybe it's asking for a raise. Maybe it's having that hard conversation with your spouse. Maybe it's quitting your job and starting your own company. I don't know. But there I was in the throes of anxiety and stage fright. And I said, you know what? How about I just take my own medicine and do what I teach others? <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough. Um, <clears throat> in this area. So I asked myself, why do I want to share this? So there's one question. Why? What do I care that the audience hears this solo? What do I care that I get to be the one to share it with them? Why is this important to me? Why do I want? And for whatever reason, that particular passage of music spoke to me about the felt experience of being loved. And so I decided in that moment that I was going to be up to the business of my audience having the felt experience of being loved. This is something I had never done before. Up until this point, I was trying to get the notes right, not make mistakes, play my best, play good music, share good phrases. I was chasing perfection effectively. And perfection doesn't exist because the closer you get to it, the more you realize how far away you are from it. There is no point in time that you can say, aha, this is perfect. So there I was with this new challenge that I had never done before. And my solo starts and my brain fires off the network. Ah, you might miss this note. And I had to say, that's okay. I, I really don't care if I miss the note because I'm no longer playing that game. I'm not about trying to get the notes right, trying to play perfect, trying to not make any mistakes, trying to do my best. I'm up to something different. I am about the business that my entire audience would have the felt experience of being loved. 
I am standing for that possibility. And then the next note would come and my brain would fire off the network. Ah, this is kind of a hard shift. You might miss it. I said, that's okay. I am not in the business of trying to get all the notes right and play perfect and do my best. I'm in the business of what's possible in my audience's life. With every single note, I had to recommit myself to what was possible in their life. This was, this was taxing. This was exhausting. I had never I done this sure. before. At the end of the solo, I had played better than I had ever played under pressure in my life. But the real victory is that when it was over, I had felt better than I had ever while playing a solo. And I couldn't wait to do it again. Because I took on a bigger problem. In your life, if you are struggling with your relationship with your teenage son or your teenage daughter, the reason you're having that problem is because you aren't up to something bigger in life. So rather than trying to fix your teenage son or daughter, go on Facebook and announce to the world that you are writing the book on success with teenagers. It'll be out in three months. And go to work writing the book. Solve that problem for everyone else who's experiencing it. Yes, I'm asking you to sit down and write even when you don't have the answers, even when you have no idea what to say. I'm asking you to step into a higher level of resourcefulness where you are willing to be the pass that the message flows through. And by doing that, you will find yourself accessing a much greater level of wisdom and resourcefulness because you took on a bigger problem. I love it. I, 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 I like to parallel bigger problem with purpose. And in, in business, the, the thing that I tend to want to drive within the performance mindset is dedicate yourself to doing something for others. And, and, and hopefully profit to you shall be the benefit at the end of the day but it can't be the other way around. And so doing something bigger, how does, how does one know, do you need to have ambition within that seeking of a bigger problem? And is everybody able to embrace a bigger problem? I, in my opinion, taking on a bigger problem is not related to being ambitious. It's related to accessing a higher level of thinking. Um, if you're sitting in a nonprofit and you guys are like, oh my gosh, if we don't raise an extra $10,000 this month, we're sunk. And you're in that room, you're going to be coming up with ideas that may or may not get you to 10,000. You might come close. Well, we could, we could do this, we could do that. Yeah, yeah, we could try all that. Instead, if that's your problem, go down the road to the nonprofit that is currently sitting in the room going, crap, if we don't come up with 100000 this month, we're sunk. And listen to how they solve that problem. Real quickly, you'll find out that your solutions won't get you to 100, but their solutions will get you to 10 a whole lot easier. It's not about ambition. It's just pragmatically speaking, it works when you're thinking on a higher level. In, in, your, in the, the Pat chapter that I read, 
you have this lovely story uh, about a Stradivarius violin that is sitting wantonly on a and and lostedly on on a desk while this uh, while while you're you're studying you're practicing, and the uh, your teacher comes back and says, "Hey, you were playing the violin." or someone, I don't, I can't remember who was that says you were playing my violin. No, 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 I put it, it's exactly in the same place. You go to all sorts of pains to have not shown any hint as to why or how it had been played. And yet, uh, and it comes back and says, it shows that, well, how the, both the bow and the Stradivarius are organic things. And, and where it sent me in my mind was how psychedelics, are a brilliant ray to remind you how small you are and how everything, even inanimate, is moving. And I was, I was wondering, I mean, in the end of the day, how that relates into your story of finding bigger. Because in the end of the day, I feel like we're small. And if, if we can remember that we're small, then it, it puts us at the service of bigger things. It does. It does. And I think so the, the story with the violin is kind of how um, wood and metal absorbs uh, an energetic fingerprint and how the master can pick up their instrument after the student has touched it in secret and the master is aware that the energetic fingerprint of the instrument has shifted a little bit. Um, when I was teaching music lessons back in the day, I could get their instrument and play on it. And that told me a lot about how they were practicing at home and what they were doing with their instrument at home, depending on how much of a fight the instrument put up to produce certain tones or certain pitches. Um, if, if I kind of like wrestled it into submission eventually the instrument would start resonating with those tones and submissions. Um, but based on what the student was doing, that kind of imprint, if you will, the instrument was just absorbing that. I think psychedelics are another great example of how the, the immaterial can be absorbed in the material. In this case, the psychedelic itself is the material that's absorbing that energetic fingerprint that gives you access to what you described. Like we are both infinitely large and infinitely small in comparison to what we're working at. So how do you, how do you tap into that? And what's, what's the utility of tapping into that? I, and in my opinion, the utility of tapping into that is it allows you to find out what you're really capable of. And it allows you to make the difference that you, that life is calling you to make. Um, Gandhi, some people don't know this, but, before he was Gandhi, the guy that unified an entire nation divided in civil war, he was a lawyer in England and um, he was a terrible lawyer. His, <laughs> on his first case, he fled the courtroom because he was terrified of speaking in public. On his second case, he gave the money back to his client and told him, I'm terrified of speaking in public. I can't, give, I can't represent you. So he fails at a lawyer because he was terrified of speaking in public. Now you gotta, you gotta wonder like what, what happened? What, because the Gandhi that we knew on the scene, fear of public speaking, that, that didn't even exist in his world. So like what took him from terrified to it didn't even exist? Well, did he 
Um, did he read a book on public speaking? Um, did he go to a powerful tips on public speaking presentation seminar? No, because those things keep you in the world where it exists. You're just dealing with it differently. Gandhi, it wasn't even a blip on his radar. So here's what happened. He leaves England. He goes to South Africa, hangs out a shingle there. He's going to try, maybe I'll succeed in law here. While he was in South Africa, he noticed that his countrymen, the people of India, were horribly oppressed. And he decides that he's going to be up to the business of peace in India. He said, there will be peace in India because I said so. Now, how outlandish is that? Nobody equipped him, trained him, knighted him, asked him, sponsored him, empowered him. No, he just took it upon himself. There will be peace in India because I said so. Now, here's the deal. When you are about the business of peace for an entire country, speaking in front of 2 million people doesn't even show up on your radar. They could boo you off the stage. You wouldn't give it a second thought because you're up to something bigger. What's possible in their lives. Um, and in my opinion, this isn't a matter of ambition or ego. It's, it's more utilitarian. It's a way of thinking that actually moves the ball forward. I'm guessing that some people who are listening, Jared, would be somewhat looking at, well, that's, there's a risk in doing that. You're not guaranteeing making money to buy me the food on the table. And somehow, whether it was your movement in that fight that you described, that sort of tango between making it perfect and the feeling of love, the business of feeling of love, you have to have courage to let go of the need to be perfect. Or, because we're dealing with fear. And if there is one definition of fear that I seem to stick with, which is, is doing so in light of the fear, in knowledge of that fear. That is for me the definition of courage. And so how, how does that work in? Because I'm, what I'm trying to get to is, yeah, yeah, nice words. I'd really like to do that. I want to, now I'm going to bring peace to the world, you know, whoops. But to, in order for me to action that, well, I have to give up probably a few things in order for that to happen. I may no longer have a livelihood. Uh, I may even you know, divorce my family because I will be so invested in saving the world. I no longer have peace at home. So Agreed. Talk, talk me through the, the risk-taking and the courage component to go for the big, bigger problem. Agreed on all fronts. Yes, uh, certainly with courage. Uh, many people uh, have this idea in their head um, that courage is the absence of fear, um, but it's not. Um, courage is the recognition that just because you feel afraid doesn't mean it's dangerous. And even if it is dangerous, that doesn't mean it's what matters most. Courage is the choice to feel afraid and take action anyways. That is courage. Um, and because it's a choice, um, it is something that anybody can do. Now, I like what you said, where this, this concept of taking on a bigger problem, kind of hacking that audiation in their minds, if you will, it sounds like in order to do that, you have to be willing to fail you got to be willing to screw it up. That's that you gotta, you gotta be willing to do that. It certainly sounds that way on the surface, 
What I would propose though is taking on something bigger is what makes it possible for you to let go of the little things that are tripping you up. Uh, I was backstage at a TEDx event and one of the speakers is in a throw of stage fright. And so when you're in that situation, people are coming by to give you well-meaning advice. And I don't know if you can imagine what that is for you, whether you've been wanting to quit your job or write your book or start the summer camp for kids or whatever it is. And even though you might care about that project, there's this wall that seems to be resisting you. So here she is wanting to give this speech on stage and there's this wall, this stage fright, if you will, that's pushing back and resisting her. So I was able to separate her from all the well-meaning and bad advice and um, just do what works, right? So I asked her, why do you wanna give this talk? And she goes, because when this happened to me, I felt delighted. Instantly, her countenance changed, instantly. She, you could tell she had stepped back into that moment of time that was meaningful. It's like, okay, how do you want the audience to feel while you're giving this talk? She goes, I want them to feel delighted too whole nother level of delight sweeping across her face. And I said, you know, many times we launch an endeavor, giving a speech or writing a book, and we play this game of withholding from ourselves. We say, after I give the perfect speech, I'll give myself permission to feel happy with myself. After I write the perfect book, I'll give myself permission to feel like I matter. Could you, is it technically possible, like just technically possible that you could give yourself permission to feel delighted now before and without going on stage to feel delighted for no reason at all? She goes, yeah, that's, that's, that's technically possible. I say, okay. Would you though, like, are you that kind of crazy? Would you do something ridiculous like that? She's like, yeah, I, I can. I am that kind of person that would do something like that. I kind of am. I say, okay. When? And as you can imagine, she went on stage, gave the talk of her life, felt great while she was doing it, and the audience felt delighted. This idea of taking on a bigger problem allows you to tap into the kind of resourcefulness that makes letting go of the fear of failing possible without taking on a bigger problem. It is, in my opinion, unrealistic to expect somebody to let go of the fear that's holding them back. Sounds like the power of being. In my opinion. So Jared, um, time is coming to a close. Your new book, The Thinking Patterns of Success, tell us, give us a, a little uh, pricey as to the remarkable work on which is based with Hartman oh. and his uh, noble nominated uh, thoughts, if you will. Yes, yes, yes. So the thinking patterns of success, how seven figure earners get more done with less effort. Um, we not only map out the actual thinking patterns um, of highly successful entrepreneurs, um, but you are able to go in to learn how that mapping is done you're able to learn the benefit of that mapping. Um, that mapping process is just like the corn maze. In your life, wherever you're running into the same obstacles, don't have enough time, don't have enough money, kids aren't behaving, don't have right relationships, whatever it is, you're running the corn maze. 
And so you're going to go here and make a mistake and then go there. And maybe that was right. But then the next row was wrong and the next row is right. Instead, how about we just put you on a ladder so you can see the whole picture. And with only three feet difference in your eyesight elevation, it goes from, I'm not sure what to do to, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. And effectively, when people are solving business problems, being able to teach them how to think at a higher level is the fastest way for them to double their business revenue and cut their production time in half. So the book covers, you know, those stories and case studies. Um, it talks about the mindset push-ups that allow somebody to start exercising their mindset and go to the next level in their mindset, think at a higher level. Um, and of course, the mapping process and Hartman, who came up with these values in the 50s. Um, but yes, if you are entrepreneurial in nature, uh, if you are uh, a kind of a professional development junkie, uh, I think you'll very much enjoy the read. Yeah, I, I, of course, I haven't had a chance to read it in full, but the, the, uh, the insights, the storytelling that you do, Jared, is, is very powerful. And, and certainly, obviously, working at changing the mind, getting, discarding this destination of perfection and accepting to go with risk for the bigger problem was you know how I, I looked at it and, and your book is a, a recipe, uh, at least a direction towards that. Uh, it seems like a, a really great book. How can people track you down, get the book, know more about you, Jared? Come over to mindsetperformance.co. Um, you can learn about the mind scan. If you're curious what's possible in your own mindset and how a tweak there would shift your ability to earn and create free time, uh, you can learn about that. Uh, you follow me on my podcast where we teach this. You can come into my free group and uh, I will start training you in this for free. Uh, and how do you get them to the free group? And the book. The group. Yes. Uh, no, and, and the group is on your site? Yes, all available through the site, mindsetperformance.co. And of course, there are the great TEDx speeches you've made. Congratulations for that, Jared. Good luck with everything. Lovely to have you on the show. And thanks for sharing your passion and your vision on how to make the world a better place. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Convince
emotions in me A convinced man In the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle to see Live for the challenge so life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die Stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel free. Trust in my reason and let me show you why. I'm a convinced man, practicing my lines. I'm a convinced man, hearing these confines. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.